Wayne Bully was a man who managed his family life and his path to success in his professional life. As a newlywed, he had an answer to every question that came at him, except for one. What is the eighth wonder of the world? I'm a Venice, California-born, Los Angeles-based sports fan, one that has played, coached, announced, and promoted sports my whole life. My love affair with sports started in my own backyard and has led me to this podcast. Thanks to the support of the Amateur Athletic Union in East Bay, I'm excited to bring you Sports Stories with Denny Lennon. Hello, Sports Historians. Welcome to audio, video, podcast, episode number 33 of Sports Stories with Denny Lennon, the top video podcast in the Sentinel Adobe Corridor. It's your official quarantine show of choice. It's time to meet my official quarantine partner for life, the director of the SSDL slate of Live at Five shows, the 1989 St. Mark's School Athlete of the Year, my wife, Christine Jinbo. Hi, everybody. Sports Stories with Denny Lennon aims to provide interesting, unique, and uplifting stories to you every night of the week. And we've made a move. We're getting mm-hmm. tubed, and we're moving to YouTube. Mm-hmm. You can find us on YouTube at youtube.com, Sports Stories with Denny Lennon. Our website is sportsstoriespodcast.com, and you can find us on Twitter at SportsStoriesDL. Subscribe to view our shows, and we go live four nights a week. Mm-hmm. Yes, we do. Make sure you're following me on Twitter at Sports Stories DL. If you don't have a Twitter account, you're going to want one. What's coming soon to the world of SSDL? It's going to be fun. So hit me up at Sports Stories DL. So what is the eighth wonder of the world, you ask? The answer might make for a classic argument in a court of law where our guest Wayne Boley would be more at ease but facing Bob Eubanks on TV with a shot at a washer and a dryer, that kind of pressure can make even the sharpest newlywed blow a gimme. Wayne needed to channel the great UCLA basketball coach and teacher John Wooden in order to step up to this challenge that he faced. Definition is um, being at your best when your best is needed. Um, the competitor enjoys it when it's difficult. There's no great joy in doing things, ladies and gentlemen, anybody else could do, and yet most of the things you and I do in our daily lives, anybody else could do, and we, whatever we're doing, we should try to do it to the best of our ability, but there's no great joy in doing the very simple things. The poem says, beyond the winning and the goal, beyond the glory and the fame, he feels the flame within his soul, born of the spirit of the game. And where the barriers may wait, built up by the opposing gods, he finds a new and deeper thrill to take him uphill, to take him on the uphill spin, because the test is greater still, and something he can revel in. The competitor enjoys it when it's difficult and revels in it, but you can't do that unless you're prepared, and failure to prepare is preparing to fail. Wayne will tell you in this interview how he may not have been prepared, but do know that Wayno didn't miss many opportunities in life. A law degree and a subsequent career as a trial lawyer, a continued passion for sports that included an inaugural championship of what would become a legendary tournament, and plenty more time for family and fun. So now it's time for part two of three with the Loyola University standout athlete, the 
trial lawyer extraordinaire and the family man without a washer and a dryer. From the 7428 studio in Westchester, California, it's Wayne Bowley. Please note this interview was recorded on March 2nd, 2020. You'd gone to, you got your teaching credential at Long Beach State, and then were you also going into uh, law school at the same time? Or, no. Or? No, when I, when I, I was married and I decided what I wanted to do, I wanted to teach and coach. Mm-hmm. When I realized I wasn't good enough to play professional basketball, mm-hmm. I wanted to teach and coach. And I started the program and I started doing a lot of student teaching and I realized that I wanted to coach more than I did teach. Mm. And teaching was 80% of my day. Mm-hmm. And then I had a real bad experience with a football coach at Millican High School who taught history. Mm. And when I met him, you know, I was 21, 22 years old and, and, and I'll never forget this as long as I live. And I was, I was, he had a classroom that was designed his class where he had his desk was at an angle and then he had his classroom designed in the form of a C or a U mm-hmm. so that if you walked out into the center of the room your back would be to a third of the class and so you'd have to you'd have to turn you have to be real careful where you'd stand so I'll never forget this as long as I live I went to fourth period and he was a football coach he had taken a personal day off I show up and he says, you can go home. I'm going to coach the football team. He was the head coach of Millican High School. And I and he said to me, uh, did you enjoy the day? And I said, I thought it was great. I said, your kids are all top-notch kids. They're disciplined. They do a great job, smart smart kids. And he said, how did you like the way I had my classroom designed? Hmm. And I said, you know, I found it a little, a little difficult because, you know, you, you're constantly – got your back to the students, so you got to be real careful. But from that standpoint, everybody's close, so they have to pay attention to you when you're talking. So I thought, and he looked at me, and he, and he said, you got to be kidding me. And I said, what, what do you mean? He said, didn't you notice? And I said, what? He said, I put all the good-looking girls in the first, oh, in the first row of, the first row of every, <laughs> of every class. And, back, to, back then, it was just called and, harmless. Yeah. Now and, it's and a I hashtag. Just said, I just said, this is not for me. Yeah. If that's this guy after 20 years is doing that. Is worrying about putting good-looking girls mm-hmm. in the front row. So, um that turned me off. Did you, to, t- did you tell him I'm already teaching. dating a criminal? No. 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 Um so you're getting married, uh you get married and uh I just want to let everybody know four children, 12 grandchildren are going to come from this union, but um you have a l- young 6-week-old and so you need a washer and a dryer, and you go on the newlywed game. Oh, oh gosh, yes, yes. <laughs> so, um, do you remember this? <coughs> oh, I like it was yesterday. Would this be first uh, first season, like newlywed game, kind no, of first started? No, or, no. Or, or no, they it, had a little bit of play. They had a little bit of play, and and I'm not, I'm not, I may be wrong, but I think your cousin even helped us get on the show, Kathy. Oh, okay. Uh, one of the Lennon sisters, and so we get on the show, and we're just knocking it dead. We're we're in first place going to the bonus question. Which and is, yeah, which is where... The bonus was where I screwed up. And, uh, <laughs> and, uh... It would, so... I have a friend, I've, a dear friend of mine who I've known since he was, well, since we were 10 or 11 years old, 11 years old. And the question was, what will your husband say is the eighth wonder of the world? Right. That was the question. <laughs> and 
Tina answered it. That's easy. He just won the family golf tournament trophy, and that's what he'll say is the because it's a big three foot high correct, trophy sitting correct, in the middle of your living room. Correct. And I beat your uncle Jimmy, and your <laughs> uncle Bill, um, and that's I funny. come out and say, "Oh, that's easy." Paul Schwartz is the eighth wonder of the world. <laughs> I mentioned this guy, and so we lost. And um, she was so upset that I missed that question. And the word got back to Paul. Paul's very, very, very affluent. Um, he bought us a washer. No, he did. Because Tina, See, Tina felt, wasn't a big fan at yeah, the time because no, he, you were you were not. doing some all night games and card gambling games, with him. Card games yeah. and and uh, and so she so he, as a, as he says, I'm just going to buy you a washer and dryer. And he and he kind of said thanks for the publicity, and um, uh, that's the story. As you um, went through law school and um, you know made that decision, <clears throat> you're at the same time we're picking up more and more beach volleyball. Is that about right? Yeah. Yeah, I was playing indoors. Mm-hmm. I played for the, the West Side Jewish Community Center. Oh, yeah. I played uh, Selznick was, and Lang were mm-hmm. our setters. Uh, we had a very good team. We took uh, third in the Nationals one year. Mm. Um, I'm in law school, and um, which was a four-year program. At, at nighttime, I had three jobs, two kids at the time. <laughs> so my life was, was a little bit... Um, chaotic to say the least but um my my indoor volleyball stopped one night because as as you may or may not know when you get close the volleyball nationals are usually in may yeah and the closer you get the more you practice so we started practicing three four nights a week uh like in mid-april um and after practice is over some guy said let's go get some pizza and a beer and so instead of getting home at 8 o'clock, I'd be getting home at 9.30, mm-hmm. 9.30 or 10. So one night I walked in the room in our house on Victoria, mm. and Tina was sitting in a rocking chair with... Danny had been sick, mm. and Danny was in her arms. No, Michael was sick. Danny was standing down. Uh, she's rocking. She's got Michael in her arms. I walked in the front door. She looked at me, and she just looked, and she said, Volleyball? or me <laughs> and walked in the bedroom with the kids mm. that was my nice. last that okay. was my last volleyball so then so then but beach volleyball fits into a little bit more of a family yeah, schedule because you can take the family with you correct. on the weekend and you're on did. a beach they're 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 occupied and you're she, playing and she loved it she was a she was a, she was one of the reasons i actually played because i used to go watch her playing she's playing with ernie sawara Mm-hmm. Uh, and I've been going crazy over the th- things you do when somebody makes a good play, and and I'm in there, and I just worked and worked and worked, <laughs> and uh, uh, just to make sure I could play at her level. <laughs> nice. Um, tell me a little bit about passing the bar exam and getting your getting in, involved in in being an attorney, and how did that like? I would imagine there's a lot. So there's a lot of stress, a lot, a lot, of, stress, of, a lot, of, yeah. lot of stress and pressure on you. You know, you you um, uh, you're in a room with with depending on where you went. I went to Glendale Junior College mm-hmm. to take the exam, and there's you know 500, and the the I didn't type at those time and in those days, and and in those days there weren't computers. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what happens when you go to these exams is you get the test. The question is when you're reading it. And then all of a sudden, somebody will start typing an answer. 
and the typewriters in those days were noisy. Yeah. And then pretty soon, pretty soon you've got 150 typewriters going, and you're going, oh, my God, because I wrote the exam. And and you're trying to write and think at the same time while these typewriters are going crazy. Yeah, that's good. And it's, a, it's, a, it's an amazing experience. Um, that's one I wouldn't want to have to do again. <laughs> yeah. But it was, it, was, it was an amazing experience. Kind of steeled you. And, yeah. and you took that same kind of competitive approach that you had in athletics, um, into in effect being uh, an attorney. Yeah, I was a. I wanted to be a trial lawyer. Again, I wanted to compete. I wanted to do something competitively. Mm-hmm. When I realized I couldn't play in the NBA, uh, I thought I could compete as a coach. And when I realized I really didn't want to do that, uh, I mean, I wanted to do it, but I didn't want to start at that lower level. I, mm-hmm. If I could have got a, a D one job and and uh, just gone I, from there, I, I would have probably done that. Um, so then I just said, maybe I'll try law school and I'll try being a trial lawyer. And and uh, I went, got my ticket, got a job, the only job I've ever had, never switched firms. At the time, it was Waters and McCluskey? Or? Time, when I joined, it was Waters and McCluskey and Corcoran. I see. And then it became Waters and McCluskey and Bowley. Uh, and they're, they're civil. Civil. Yeah. And so you just dove right in. Dove right in. I tried my first case in about, I was there less than... 12 months, and I'll tell another interesting story. Throw you right out. Uh, there was a top plaintiff's attorney who who, who officed on the same floor we did. And and I had, I've always been one, my philosophy in life has always been, understand your priorities, mm-hmm. deal with your priorities when it is a priority, but make time for yourself and your family. Mm-hmm. Don't let your job consume you to the point where you know, you're you're 25 years into your job, and your kids are out of school. They've got their own families, and you haven't. Yeah. So that's always been my philosophy, and um, so one day I went and played golf, and I had a case with this this big time attorney. I was actually uh, it was my then boss's case that I was working up on, working it up on, and and um, I went back to the office after golf at like 8.30 at night to get some work done. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> he saw me, he was a workaholic, and he saw me leaving the office at like 10 p.m. And he's coming out of his office, and we went into each other. The next day, he offered me a job. Hmm. He offered me a job <clears throat> because he thought that I was this workaholic kid that <laughs> works till 10 o'clock at night. I was going to be a perfect fit for him. And... Um, I mentioned it to my then boss, and maybe that helped because they made me a, they made me a partner in the firm. <laughs> they did. Two months later, I made wow. me a partner. Um, I wanted to um, bring something up uh, because it's um, it was it was like such an important time for me, but also it's important that adults know that they're sometimes changing the perspective of a young person's life. So you used to be really kind to me because I was hanging out with your kids, Michael and Danny. And take me to various games here, there, and everywhere. I got to travel around with you. But more, most importantly, we went to Tempe, I think, Arizona, yeah. when LMU made the 1980 NCAAs. Jim McCloskey was on that team, and they played Arizona State, I believe. Yeah, that's right. Um, and it was awesome. We were hanging at the same hotel as a couple Some of the teams. Players, so it was like yeah. Ohio State and DePaul were there. 
And so they were in the pool with us and to be like 14, 15 years old and these massive guys and they're, they're just college kids. Yeah. You know, they were eating our pizza that you had bought for us and, and all of this. But I met like Clark Kellogg and Mark Aguirre and these guys. And then to go to this big arena and Byron Scott was on the team at Arizona State and I knew who he was from Morningside. And I just was blown away at how exciting that was. And it really did just kind of open my mind to, wow, look at this. Like this is big time. And, you know, it's just, it was fun to be in that arena. Yeah, no. Um, yeah, it was incredible. Um, and, and to care. Although that team, I also went up to watch when they got to the final eight. And this is a little trivia question. That, that Oh, the 1990 team when they got to the final eight. Not a whole lot of people are going to pay much attention to this. But the game before Loyola played Arkansas, UNLV played Ball State. And with 24 seconds to go in the game, Ball State has the ball down by one. Mm. If Ball State makes that shot, they missed it, and UNLV ended up winning by three because they got the foul and made two free throws. Um, LMU plays Ball State, and in my opinion, goes to the final four. And then goes to the final four. Yeah. Wow. Wow, that was something. We interrupt this podcast to bring you a commercial from our sponsor, Casablanca. Casablanca Restaurant in Venice, California. Proud sponsor of Sports Stories with Denny Lennon. Also sponsoring the Facebook Live at Five Friday show. Margaritas. That's right. Carlos is kind enough at Casablanca to uh, package up, like, a, to go what they're selling, right? Mm -hmm. uh, to go. What uh, What is in it? It's like that taco it's a bar. daily deal. He does basically a taco bar with two different meats, beans, rice, uh, tortillas. It's fantastic. Brilliant. And then you throw in the margaritas with that. And if you watch our uh, Friday show, you'll see that we cheers one another. He sends one over to uh, Venice where Marley and the Rices are hosting part of the show over here to the 7428 studio. And where any we do local it. guests. And any local guests. Doug O'Neill. as well. Doug O'Neill, the uh, Triple Crown winner, horse trainer, is a new big fan. So, you know, thank you, Carlos. You can call Carlos. At 310-505-5091. Again, 310-505-5091. Call Carlos. Ask him for the Sports Stories with Denny Lennon special. He's going to throw in margaritas or a big percentage off. Vámonos a Casa Blanca. Vámonos a Casa Blanca. Vámonos a Casa Blanca. La comida para la familia. Vámonos a Casa Blanca. Vámonos a Casa Blanca. And now back to our interview. So that was 1980 that I was talking about. No. And uh, as far as the... Oh, um, yes, 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 as the, yes. That was the year like UCLA made a run to the finals. That's right. Right? <clears throat> um, but um, so I was going to jump up. You're, you're doing your thing. Uh, still playing a little bit. But we start, me and your son and uh, my buddy Ray, we start the Venice Backyard Championships in my backyard. And um, it's our first year, and you're coming just to watch. Correct. And um, uh, 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 there's an A player and a B player. And the A player, Gary Conley, his B player, walks out the back gate not to return. And he needs a partner. And so you jump in. Yeah, you made the mistake of putting two A players on the same, on the yes. same team. Yes. So, so not being an experienced uh, tournament director quite yet, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we threw two A players, and you rolled at the title. And um, someday we're going to have a uh, roundtable, 
and we'll make sure that you have to defend your title. We'll do that on the 50th anniversary or something. But more important, you know what I found out that day uh, or subsequently the weeks after is controversy is good for an event because yeah. everybody started talking and it just was you're getting a giggle out of it. But yeah. everybody started to talk and then it just kind of lit fire. And then from there, we were able to always reference it and keep building on it. And it expanded. And I want to back up because I never got to finish that story, which, that, which I think would be a great movie and a, a scene in, yeah. a, in a movie. And that was after we got arrested. <laughs> okay. After we got arrested, yeah. you know, I'm playing. I'm a junior and Vietnam is, is, is upon mm. us. And I get a notice to appear for a physical for the army, so, so this is mid sixties. This is uh, sixty four. Yeah, sixty four. So I, I, it was. I said I had to be there Jeez. at seven a.m. So I, I drive down there and I think I'm going to be the first guy there. And I get there and there's five hundred people already there for a physical exam. So I'm standing there and this this guy comes down the stairs and he has a he has a microphone. He says, "Anyone who's ever been arrested, follow the yellow line upstairs." So I'm listening. I was arrested. So I'm following the yellow line, and I get into a line. The line is from here out to your hedges. Okay. And and as I get closer, I can hear the guy at the desk say, and his head never came up, last name first, date of arrest, and charge. And I'm listening to burglary, assault with a deadly weapon, um, um, all, uh, what, what other crimes there was. I mean, every you name it. Uh, attempted murder, and I'm just, so now it's my turn, and I'm standing there, and I've got a flat top. I have my Loyola jacket on, Letterman's jacket on, and the, his head never came up. And he said, "Last name first And I said, "Boldly Wayne." He writes it down. Date of arrest. I said, "July 1963." Right. And he says, "Charge," and I said, "Possession." He said, "Cocaine." I said, "No, sir." He said, "Marijuana." I said, "No, sir." He said, um, "What illicit drug was it, son?" And I said. None that I'm aware of. He says, well, well, what? And his head never came up. What was it? And I said, alcohol. He stopped, put his pen down. He looked up at me and he said, someone arrested you for the possession of alcohol? I said, yes, sir. He says, that's not what we're looking for. You go back down stairs. That's a dead true story. You're like, well, actually, I was making my date mule some illegal stuff. And substance. someday I'll tell you the Troy Collier story, too, which... Okay. Which happened at LMU? Which, you know, my 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 years, uh, I was all league as a sophomore, mm -hmm. and in December of, and and this is I think this is an incredible story. In December, we fly to Utah to play Utah State. Mm -hmm. Utah State had the number one score; they were the number three team in the country. They had the number one leading score in the country on their team. His name is Wayne Estes. Okay, so. My car coach designed a defense where the guards would would overplay the guards so they couldn't get to the outside, and they can't they can't get the ball to the to the forward to Wayne Estes so they call timeout, and during the timeout, uh, Liddell Anderson I think was the coach's name he said to the center Troy Collier, you go up and set a screen on the guard, mm -hmm. set a screen on the guard so the guard can get the ball to the outside to Wayne, so the first time they do this, my one of my best friends, who was our center, Mike Lawler, yells, mm -hmm. yells, switch. So now he's got this six-foot uh, guard, and I've got this six-nine center, <laughs> yeah. and he's backing up into the paint, trying, and he's yelling, little man on me. 
Yeah. He's waving his arms. Like, but the guard can't see over Mike's six six arms, and he's trying to get, and he's backing up, backing up, and and the scouting report said he was a wimp, didn't like to be pushed around the center. I have both my arms on his back, and I'm pressing into his back like this with all my 170 pounds, and I'm trying to keep him from getting down to where he's going to get a layup. And he feels the pressure finally, and he takes his right arm, and he goes like this, and he broke my nose, Ooh. broke my cheekbone, broke my zygomatic arch. Oh, jeez. I was on the floor. I swear, I've never seen that much blood in oh, Utah. Oh, goodness. I'm laying on the floor. <laughs> I'm laying on the floor, and, I, and the coach comes running out, and I said, I can't breathe. I can't breathe. And he said, breathe through your mouth. <laughs> so I That's did. That's good advice. I did. That's good advice. They take me to the training room. They hold The four guys hold me down. My nose was out here. And the, and the trainer gets on top mm-hmm. of me, and I was crying, screaming, mm. and they set my nose. Uh. Yep. And it popped open. And they set it twice, and it popped open. Mm. They packed it, and they flew me home that night. I had surgery the next day. Mm-hmm. So I'm telling you this story because Trollock Collier was a senior. Mm-hmm. All right? I was a, a junior. Okay. And um, he gets drafted by the Lakers to try out for the Lakers. Mm. So I plan this whole thing with my teammates because the only guys allowed in the gym are us. I had guys guarding each door, and Frank O'Neill was a Laker trainer. So they're coming for practice. Laker trainer. He would set out their workout gear uh, by name. First, the the rookies were all at the far end of the locker room that I dressed in. So I I go down, and I find Collier's practice gear, and I put analgesic bomb in his jock. (laughs) I spread it in his jock. How did I know that was coming? Spread it in his jock. And myself and five of my teammates are now sitting in the stands watching practice. Um, who was the coach? The coach was... Bill no. No, no, no. About was, Vandekoff? No, it was before uh, Butch Vandekoff. It was... Um, Frank O'Neill was the trainer. Schaus, Fred Schaus. Schaus, that's right. Schaus comes out and goes, all right, man, let's go. Layups. Now, as you know... Analgesic bond doesn't begin to burn <laughs> until you start to sweat. You got to start to sweat. So they're running layups. They're running layups, and all of a sudden, all of a sudden, Troy Collier is grabbing his his <laughs> loin, and he's going, "Oh, oh!" And and Shouse, Shouse blows the whistle. So practice is stopped, and he goes, "Troy, what the hell's going on? What's the matter?" And he says, "Coach, my balls is on fire." <laughs> so, so. So Jerry Lee Lewis got it from. So, so <laughs> Shouse says, "What?" He says, "My ball." And then he reaches down, and grabs what he what he, he realizes is Angie's a bomb. He thinks it's a rookie plank, oh. a prank, and he goes after. And, and Larusso is laughing. He goes after Larusso. Rudy Larusso. He throws. Yeah. He throws a punch with his right hand. Oh, look at what you started. He misses. LaRusso hits him with a left. Oh, come on. And this guy goes down like a fallen tree, like this. Kaboom. Like this. He's on the ground like you are. He's on the ground. Now, LaRusso is over him, and West and Baylor have got LaRusso. The, they've got a hold of him, like, like, don't, don't. And he was ready to hit him again, but he never did. And you know, have you ever seen a fighter get up when he's knocked out on his feet? He gets up, and he's wobbling. And all of a sudden, he realizes his balls are on fire. <laughs> He takes off and he runs in, you know, 
into our showers, into our showers, and our showers, uh, as he's running, Frank O'Neill says, Troy, Troy, don't put water, and he turns the shower on. Oh, boy. And it exacerbates the pain. That's So, <laughs> needless to say, I got even. You got even with, with Troy Collier. Well, that is, uh, he ended up playing for the Globe Trotters. Did he, did he ever know this? That you? That was no, you behind are you it. Kidding? No. Oh, oh, he knows oh we're going to. No, oh, we're gonna no hash- I, ho- I hope this doesn't come out. It's going to. He looks me up. Oh, we're hashtagging him. <laughs> <laughs> we're hashtagging Anil Jalusic bomb. We're hashtag balls on fire. Back to that team because this is this is something that your fan base probably doesn't know, but would 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 be. Would, would be shaking their heads and saying, oh, how sad. So Wayne Estes is the leading scorer in the country. Mm-hmm. We play them, and the following week, he scores 35 points. Hmm. He's coming, going home, going home. He's going home, and as he's driving down the road, he sees a car on fire in a snowstorm on the side of the road. He jumps out of the car and walks into a wire, electrocutes himself, mm. and dies. Goodness. Twenty years later, I'm in a Westwood with, t- with Tina, yeah. and we're in this used bookstore. And I'm, I'm looking. I love bookstores, and I'm looking around. And I see this book. It's entitled uh, "Weird Sports Stories." Yeah, I, I, lo- I love I, those things. I pick up the book and I start. I go to the table of contents, and down about number six, it says the Wayne Estes story. Wild. This is 20 years later. So I, I go right to that chapter, and everything I'm telling you is dead honest true, wow, that's except wild. the one factor that was in there that I didn't know as to why this is a weird sports story. That day, the day he died, he was walking down the streets of Logan, Utah, walked into an insurance agency, and bought a $10,000 accidental Come death policy on. on himself. That day. Wild. And that's why it was in that book. Wow. And that's a dead true story. I could see where that... They didn't want to pay <laughs> off on this when they were like, oh, hmm, you're not going to go searching for a car crash, are you? Dead true. So wow, got, that's wild. Uh, it's unbelievable. Wayne Estes was his name. What, um, you know, I would imagine you had a few crazy cases. And uh-huh. um, and do and he just like popped your mind. Cause, so you, you, you go on to what well, I will say is like an, a really an illustrious career. You're named one of the top lawyers in the country. You've really had a lot of right. success. People don't even want to get into um, court with you because you have such a outstanding record. But I would imagine along the way you had some quirky ones oh, or some wild well, I, ones. I, I could write a book of the things that, I, <laughs> that I've seen. Uh, this is know, the new book. You don't happened. have to read. And you can just but the only people who would, who would enjoy it would be lawyers, so they probably wouldn't <laughs> buy it. But, um, yeah, no, I've had a number of of crazy cases, a, a couple that comes to mind. I tried a case in Fresno. I was up there for three and a half months, mm-hmm. and against one of the top attorneys in in San from San Francisco, and the judge he had forty cases, and the judge said, "Pick your best case, and we'll try this one, and then the other thirty nine will hopefully fall into place." Okay. And it was a it was a hydroelectric plant that was being built up in the mountains, and there was a they were driving these trucks called dumpies, and and the vibrations from these trucks were causing all kinds of back injuries and other injuries, kidney injuries, and et cetera, et cetera. So we're trying this case, and this man had the biggest ego um, of, of any lawyer I've ever met. And the bottom line is is um, we get to the argument, the jury, the final argument. And in those days, you know, you didn't have all this stuff you have today. Everything you wrote down, you wrote it down on a, 
on a piece of sheet of paper and they teach you that because the last thing the plaintiff's attorney does is he puts the amount up, give me $5 million. And they teach you to just cover that when you get up to give your argument. He goes first, then you go. Oh, I see. So you get up to, to the, finish. So that, it's like so with a big jur- notepad. So the jury's not looking at it. So during board. his argument, he gets up and he walks over to the jury and he says, ladies and gentlemen, when I was a young man growing up in Montana, I had to go to a, a one-building schoolhouse, grades 1 through 12. And sometimes in the winter, I'd have to walk a mile and a half in the snow. And sometimes my friend and I would sneak out of class and we would climb up on the top of the building and there was a um, the, the stovepipe that came up from the, from the chimney from, from down below that heated the school. We would bring a bag of rocks and we would throw the rocks down the chimney and the rocks would go clunk, 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 but you could never hear them hit the ground. He walks over, he puts a finger in my face and he said, my worthy opponent, Mr. Bowley, reminded me of that story. Everything he's done in this case, clunk, clunk, <laughs> clunk, but nothing has hit the ground. Now, I'm sitting there, and I'm super competitive, as you know, and, and i got to figure, how am I going to get even? What am I going to do? Now, it's my turn. You can't do the gel story. You can't that, do that No, anymore. no. <laughs> that that no, moment that passed. Work. Well, they also teach you that if you, ask, if you ask a jury a question and you don't get them to respond, if you're not getting nodding or shaking the head, uh-huh. You just forget it and move on. Okay. So I said, ladies and gentlemen, I, what I'm about to say has nothing to do with this case. I said, but because my, my opponent mentioned something that also had nothing to do with this case, I said, I thought I should comment on it. I said, do you remember his story about him walking in the snow to school? And I get three or four of my jurors going like this. Uh-huh. So I know I've got him. So I go on. I said, well, again, that had nothing to do with the case except to maybe engender some sympathy for him having to walk a mile and a half. I said, however, I said, uh, Mr. V, I, walk, I walked over to his exhibits and I flipped over to one of the jury um, uh, instructions, 2.30, at the time was preponderance of the evidence was mm-hmm. the name of the instruction. And I walked over and I put my finger in his face. I said, Mr. Veen, Mr. Veen, I said, perhaps if you hadn't snuck out of class so often, <laughs> you would have learned how to spell preponderance. <laughs> Yes. He put it down down. The jury cracked up. They cracked up laughing. This man had such a huge, huge um, uh, ego that he got up in his rebuttal and he said, I didn't do the exhibits. My associate did them. So anyway, a long story. That was was one. There's been some embarrassing moments in my career as a lawyer. Um, But um, interesting cases, crazy cases. I had a case one time where... uh, or I, um, someone from the Middle East had brought their father out and was trying to teach him how to drive. Mother, mother how to drive down Santa Monica Boulevard. And Good place. Down Santa Monica Boulevard. Good place to learn. And the car ends up going across two lanes, going eastbound on Santa Monica Boulevard, into a construction, over a curb, into a construction fence, down into a ditch where there now exists a giant office building. And they were suing the construction company for not having a strong enough barrier to keep the keep the car <laughs> from going down into the fence because this is because this is a driving yeah, yeah I mean it's practice it, it, lane every yeah every every driving <laughs> practice lane and and of course if they had put up a concrete wall then the guy and he didn't die he was seriously injured but he did not die 
Oh, my goodness. So I've had a number of crazy cases. You had um, along the way four kids, of course, Mike, Danny, Chrissy, and Jenny, and 12 uh, grandchildren now. I thought one thing that's really unique was um, Mike, who, uh, you know, Mike and Danny, who I, of course, grew up with, but Mike having three boys, your three uh, grandkids, all on the same uh, Division One volleyball team at the same time. And UCSB. Yeah. yeah. Isn't that wild? That was great. First time in the history of the sport. I would imagine, right? I, I don't never, even know. Never, I don't even know that anybody's thought to no, research something never, like never that. Never happened. First of all, you got to have kids bang back to back to back, real quick. That's number one. <laughs> That's, yeah. And uh, and then second of all, they all have to be good enough to be able to play. Of course. Uh, D1 volleyball. Yeah, that's unbelievable. Now it's time for an installment of As Time Goes By, where we get to know Carlos Haro Jr. of Casablanca Restaurant in Venice, one minute at a time. Now let's play it again with Carlos Jr. So learning more about Carlos Jr. here, and he's one of the earliest subscribers and one of the uh, most ardent fans of Sports Stories with Denny Lennon. Yes, I am. So hopefully we'll uh, get some of these trivia questions. Okay, perfect. All right. What elementary Catholic grade school did the host, the producer, the equipment specialist, the social media coordinator, and the lead researcher all attend? Same works. That's right. Oh, well, yeah. Okay. That one was easy. That one. Got you out of the gate. What is the name of the home base of Sports Stories with Denny Lennon where the show's recorded? Is that 42, uh, mm. 420 uh, mm. Studio? No? I'm 420 <laughs> Studio. That would that would send a message. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> that would explain that, a whole lot about the show. <laughs> it's a 7428 Studio, but it was a good track. Okay. <laughs> Sports Stories with Denny Lennon is supported by the AAU. Find a local event and join at aausports.org. And remember, you can catch your favorite amateur sports live stream, replays, and highlights at BallerTV.com. Sports Stories, along with East Bay, supports the Heroes Movement, a nonprofit that bridges the gap from mental or physical therapy to getting strong again through strength and conditioning workouts. This free service is available for any veteran of the United States Armed Forces. Visit HeroesMovementUSA.org for more information. Sports Stories, along with thousands of people across the country, also supports the My Stuff Bags Foundation, a nonprofit that provides traumatized children with new belongings and new hope. Learn more at MyStuffBags.org. Sports Stories with Denny Lennon is a production of Sports Stories, Inc. and is available on Apple Podcasts and YouTube or wherever you listen and watch. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and give us a review. It really helps spread the word. You can find all our social media links, archives, and other info on our website at sportsstoriespodcast.com. Special thanks to the John R. Wooden Course and Wooden's Wisdom. Original music for Sports Stories is courtesy of Lennon Music Productions. Original images by Sienna Lennon Photography. Sports Stories is produced by Christine Jimbo and Marley Rice. Sports Stories is edited by Bob McCall. Additional staff include Ray Castro, Teresa Dolan, Jake Downey, Carlos Haro, and Buck Magic Lennon. If you're wicked smart, you tech into Sports Stories with Denny Lennon. It's gonna be a pisser. Check it out, book!